Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 16 The ladies had left the room, and the port was circulating. Mr. Scogan filled his glass, passed on the decanter, and, leaning back in his chair, looked about him for a moment in silence. The conversation rippled idly around him, but he disregarded it. He was smiling at some private joke. Gombold noticed his smile. "'What's amusing you?' he asked. "'I was just looking at you all, sitting round this table,' said Mr. Scogan. "'Are we as comic as all that?' "'Not at all,' Mr. Scogan answered politely. "'I was merely amused by my own speculations.' "'And what were they?' "'The idlest, the most academic of speculations. "'I was looking at you one by one, "'and trying to imagine which of the first six Caesars you would each resemble, "'if you were given the opportunity of behaving like a Caesar.' The Caesars are one of my touchstones, Mr. Scogan explained. They are characters functioning, so to speak, in the void. They are human beings developed to their logical conclusions. Hence their unequalled value as a touchstone, a standard. When I meet someone for the first time, I ask myself this question. Given the Caesarian environment, which of the Caesars would this person resemble? Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero? I take each trait of character, each mental and emotional bias, each little oddity, and magnify them a thousand times. The resulting image gives me his Caesarian formula. "'And which of the Caesars do you resemble?' asked Gombold. "'I'm potentially all of them,' Mr. Scogan replied. "'All, with the possible exception of Claudius, who was much too stupid to be a development of anything in my character.' The seeds of Julius' courage and compelling energy, of Augustus' prudence, of the libidinousness and cruelty of Tiberius, of Caligula's folly, of Nero's artistic genius and enormous vanity, are all within me. Given the opportunities, I might have been something fabulous. But circumstances were against me. I was born and brought up in a country rectory. I passed my youth doing a great deal of utterly senseless hard work for a very little money. The result is that now, in middle age, I am the poor thing that I am. But perhaps it is as well. Perhaps, too, it's as well that Dennis hasn't been permitted to flower into a little Nero, and that Ivor remains only potentially a Caligula. Yes, it's better so, no doubt. But it would have been more amusing, as a spectacle, if they had had the chance to develop untrammeled the full horror of their potentialities. It would have been pleasant and interesting to watch their tics and foibles and little vices swelling and burgeoning and blossoming into enormous and fantastic flowers of cruelty and pride and lewdness and avarice. The Caesarian environment makes the Caesar, as the special food and the queenly cell make the queen bee. We differ from the bees in so far that, given the proper food, they can be sure of making a queen every time. With us there is no such certainty. Out of every ten men placed in the Caesarean environment, one will be temperamentally good or intelligent or great. The rest will blossom into Caesars. He will not. Seventy and eighty years ago, simple-minded people, reading of the exploits of the Bourbons in South Italy, cried out in amazement, to think that such things could be happening in the nineteenth century. And a few years since, we too were astonished to find that in our still more astonishing twentieth century, unhappy blackamoors on the Congo and the Amazon were being treated as English serfs were treated in the time of Stephen. Today we are no longer surprised at these things. The black and tans, Harry Ireland, the Poles maltreat the Silesians, the bold fascisti slaughter their poorer countrymen. We take it all for granted. Since the war, we wonder at nothing. 
We have created a Caesarian environment, and a host of little Caesars has sprung up. What could be more natural? Mr. Scogan drank off what was left of his port, and refilled the glass. At this very moment, he went on, the most frightful horrors are taking place in every corner of the world. People are being crushed, slashed, disemboweled, mangled. Their dead bodies rot, and their eyes decay with the rest. Screams of pain and fear go pulsing through the air at the rate of eleven hundred feet per second. After travelling for three seconds, they are perfectly inaudible. These are the distressing facts. But do we enjoy life any less because of them? Most certainly we do not. We feel sympathy, no doubt. We represent to ourselves imaginatively the suffering of nations and individuals, and we deplore them. But after all, what are sympathy and imagination? Precious little, unless the person for whom we feel sympathy happens to be closely involved in our affections. And even then they don't go very far. And a good thing, too, for if one had an imagination vivid enough, and a sympathy sufficiently sensitive really to comprehend and to feel the sufferings of other people, one would never have a moment's peace of mind. A really sympathetic race would not so much as know the meaning of happiness. But luckily, as I've already said, we aren't a sympathetic race. At the beginning of the war I used to think I really suffered through imagination and sympathy with those who physically suffered. But after a month or two I had to admit that, honestly, I didn't. And yet I think I have a more vivid imagination than most. One is always alone in suffering. The fact is depressing when one happens to be the sufferer, but it makes pleasure possible for the rest of the world. There was a pause. Henry Wimbush pushed back his chair. I think perhaps we ought to go and join the ladies, he said. So do I, said Ivor, jumping up with alacrity. He turned to Mr. Scogan. Fortunately, he said, we can share our pleasures. We are not always condemned to be happy alone. End of chapter.